action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcasts at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies on this day, Boxing Day. Let's go boxing. How was your Christmas, Joshua? It was delightful. Thank you very much. Same. How was your Hanukkah? Hanukkah. Has it happened yet? Hanukkah. Yeah, <laughs> Hanukkah was like two weeks ago. Oh, right. And it was great. Oh, good. It was wonderful. Oh. We are going to the movies today. We saw The Exorcist, directed by William Freakin. And the reason we're doing it today is because today marks the 45th anniversary since it was released. 45 years old. Damn. That is one year older than Max von Sydow was when he made the film. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. They made him look older like that guy in Dad's Army. And it's so convincing that when I watched The Force Awakens and I was like, that's Max von Sydow. What is he, like 150 now? <laughs> how is he that? How is he still alive? Yeah, he kind of looks the age now that he was made up to be Yeah, back then in, in 73. Yeah. yeah. So which version of the film did you watch for this? I just watched the regular two hours, what, 12 minutes or something version. That is not the regular Oh, so the the original 1973 cut is 12 minutes shorter. So I watched it. I just watched the regular one on Amazon. There are two versions. I'm so confused. There's the original 1973 version, which was released in 1973. Yeah. That was the version that was banned. That's the version that was re-released on the 25th anniversary in 1998. Yeah. Then, in 2000, William Friedkin um, put back in about 12 minutes worth of footage that he had cut just before the 73 release. Yeah. And that was called the version you have never seen. Oh, no. I said, no, I didn't watch that one. I I watched the two hours, one minute version. You watched the two hours, one minute version? Yeah, so I watched the original. Okay. Yeah. So there was no spider walking. There's no spider walking? No. Okay. So I watched, because I thought you were going to rent it off of iTunes, I watched (laughs) the version you've never seen. Although... That came out in 2000. It then got rebranded as the extended director's cut. So Uh there's only two versions, but it looks like there's three. Oh, okay. Really, it's a writer's cut because William Peter Blatty, who wrote the original novel and then went on to write the screenplay, had campaigned for years for William Friedkin, the director, to put put those scenes back in. So he finally did. Personally, I'm a bit mixed about whether we need those extra scenes. We absolutely do not need any of the superimposed heads in various <laughs> places. Is it really blatantly obvious that they're there? Yeah. Like when when Chris comes home and the lights are off and she walks into the kitchen, puts the light on, just before she finds out that Burke is dead, when she turns the light on, there's a flicker of a face over the gas cooker. I've seen the picture of that and it looks ridiculous. Yeah. And then later on, when Jason Miller has got the demon inside of him and he looks up at the window, there's a very quick flash of his mother's gigantic head in the window. Oh, come on. Stupid. Looks like... We've already had her in the bed as a hallucination kind yeah. of thing. We don't need the reflection in the, in the window. No, we don't need it. But the extended cut, 
get Reagan to the doctors a little bit quicker. And you could argue that, yes, that makes sense. I think it slows the movie down ever so slightly. I think we, in the original cut, we're easily able to draw parallels between her behavior and the reason she needs to go to the doctor. We don't need to see her go to the doctor any earlier because you're More. just hammering, though, you're hammering home the same points. Yeah. And then um, in the director's cut, there's a conversation between Karras and Merrin about why, why this girl that was cut out of the movie. Mm. So I'm a, I'm a, And what do they say? Why do they say it's her? They say, uh, Merrin says, it could have been any girl. She is being sent to test us. Right. Or the, rather, the devil is taking over this girl to test us. So that conversation tells us nothing, really. <laughs> well, it, it kind of... I think it reiterates a point that I think we can come to conclusions on our own. Yeah. And then there's the alternative ending. Which... Oh. Which is the... Um, the the father at the end, the the, the priest, who um, gives... Karis's... Karis's yeah. friend. Yeah. Uh, meets the detective oh, and they walk off. Which is the end of the book. Which is the end of the book, yeah. yeah. But, you know, not necessarily needed for the film. No. And also the film starts differently. So instead of just going straight to Iraq, there is a, um ominous shot of the outside of the house. Uh. And we see a figure moving by the window in Regan's bedroom. Huh. Then it cuts to the Exorcist title card. Then it cuts to the Red Sun in Iraq. Oh, weird. So it, kind yeah. of, it gives you that it gives you that hint that the story is going to take place in this house a lot earlier on yeah. than the original cut did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And maybe there's a figure, something's happening in the window and yeah. it's a bit ominous. And I just think, I don't think that's necessarily needed. Is this the first time you've watched it? No, I watched it a couple of times. And the first time I watched it was when I was sort of 16, maybe. And I think actually I was too young to really un kind of grasp it and really kind of appreciate it. Mm. As a teenager, I thought it was incredibly boring. It wasn't oh, really? scary. It just didn't scare me. I just, I was, you know, I was being, at that time I was watching all the slasher films from the 80s, which are like hit you hard and fast and quick. And so then I watched this and I was just like, what is this? This is really boring. Um, and then I rewatched it sort of 10 years ago maybe so I'd have been 25 and it was like I slapped the face it was kind of such a different experience mm -hmm. being that more mature and for me then it was this horror of a woman a mother losing control of her child yeah. and not understanding what is happening in her house um, and then again this time it was different again where I was just kind of like I don't know what this film is about anymore because it's about so many different things and also doesn't really make any great statement about anything. It just kind of exists in this really weird, scary place where you can draw from it whatever you like, really. Mm. You'd seen it before, right? I saw it when it was re-released because <clears throat> it was part of the Video Nasties ban. Yeah. And then it was re-released for its 25th anniversary. It was, a, a, I guess, a digital cleanup, but... It was the 1973 cut. Mm. So I saw that in the cinema and I remember, I must have seen it in Finchley. And then I stayed at my friend's house and I remember in the spare room I was in, there was an ensuite, and I just had to have the light in the bathroom on and the door open a little bit so my room wasn't completely <laughs> dark. Yeah. Because 
scary faces do terrorize me. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a power in that movie. And I'm not saying it's a religious power. I'm just saying it, in terms of movie making, there is a real force to be reckoned with. And it really does get in your head and it, it stays there. Mm. It's not a film that you can walk away from and go off and do your everyday things. It really does stay with you and it lingers there. So I saw it then. Then I bought the VHS that came out soon after because it did the cinema run and then the VHS run. That would have run. been like 98. It was 98, it? yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember I bought it from this place in Watford that I used to get all these... Che- a bit like FOP, but a forerunner to fop mm. like new stuff but cheap right um then i bought the mark commode bfi classics book where he argued why this should be a classic and why it should be considered a classic then i bought a book by bob mccabe called the exorcist out of the shadows i watched mark commode's um the fear of god documentary i became really obsessed oh with this film I it, didn't it was know like one all. of the first films i became utterly obsessed with whoa then i bought the version you've never seen on vhs in 2000 i've still got that along the way i've bought the dvd and along the way i bought the blu-ray and the blu-ray has two versions on which is why i had the option to watch the version you've never seen and that's the word the version i watched ahead of thinking that's what you were going to do i love this film <laughs> <laughs> i fucking love this film. i just think in terms of if we're talking about the 1973 cut it is as near perfect as you're ever going to get to a not just a studio film but a the idea of what film is meant to do Mm. it taught me so much about visual storytelling and 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 using sound in film has all these like you could watch that opening the rack scene and if you just decode everything you know exactly what's going to happen in the rest of the film oh really you can all the motifs are there yeah you know there's things like the old woman's face um while, while the priest is walking along, he almost gets run over by a horse-drawn cart. Mm-hmm. And there's this woman in, in uh, a burqa or whatever, uh, wrapped in, in, in the back. And she's sort of like, her face is really haggard and old and the light is sort of flicking on it mm. as she goes by. Her face looks exactly how Regan's face ends up looking and how Chris McNeil's face ends up looking. Because as the film goes on, the mum starts off from being this really glam movie star to just this battered worried mom with a bruise on her face and bags under her eyes and Regan goes from looking like this sweet cherubic little child to this fucked up haggard old cow this whole (laughs) the sow is mine this sow in the bed and that woman's face represents that it foreshadows what we're gonna see there's dogs fighting which sounds just like the demonic noises that we hear later on in the film and the rats in the cellar in in the the attic mm. um the tramp in the subway also has a face like Regan's later on the clanging metal in Iraq sounds just like the clanging metal in the subway and in the hospital scenes and also the banging of the doors uh, in the exorcist scene in the actual mm-hmm. exorcism Father Merrin, when we first see Father Merrin, Max von, Z- Max von Sydow, he is introduced to us framed within the, the, the legs of a child. The child is like oh, yeah. by the camera and Merrin's just a little bit further off. And that foreshadows that he is going to, his death is going to come by the hands or from the hands of a more powerful entity in the body of a child. Mm. So all these things are, are sort of laced in throughout this film all these motives and all these um sort of narrative threads and these these 
iconic things. You know, he finds a statue of Pazuzu much in the same way that the detective later on finds a similar shaped uh, clay model at the base of the stairs. Yeah. So all these things, if you just decode them, you kind of, you can see where things are going. Mm. It's such a strange, um, such a strange sequence to open the film with because, you know, the film is now famous famously about a, a, a young girl getting possessed by a, a you know a devil mm. um and it's you know the iconography of the posters is that house it's a guy going up to the house um you know you it, the film is famous for all of that stuff it's not famous for having a 12 minute opening sequence set in iraq where yeah. an old man kind of bumbles around <laughs> kind of progressively getting more and more discombobulated and so when that starts, you're just a bit like, what the heck is going on? This yeah. is really odd. And seemingly there's no reason for it. No, until exactly. 25, 30 minutes towards the end. And also there are a couple of old men who turn up throughout the film before he turns up. Mm. Where you're like, wait, is that the guy from the beginning? Because they look so similar to him. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't turn up until an hour and a half in. No. He's only in the last half an hour of the film. Yeah. Um, but do you? Who do you think the exorcist is? Who is the exorcist in this film? Oh, it's a hundred percent Karras. Yeah, because you're led to believe it's this guy who you've mm. seen on the poster. He's a exorcist, right? Merrin is a exorcist, and we know that he's, you know, ten or twelve years ago he did an exorcism that lasted months and damn near killed him, yeah. as the other priest says. But this film, the exorcist, is Karras. Yeah, he's got to exorcise this child. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to exercise his own guilt and his own lack of faith and his guilt around the fact that he's lost his faith. Yeah. He is the exorcist. It's just as much his story as it is Regan's and it's just as much Chris, Chris O'Neill's story, Chris... Um, McNeil. McNeil. Uh, what's, what's Ellen Burstyn? Mm. It's just as much her story as it is Regan's. Yeah, it's an ensemble piece. <clears throat> 100%. In, in the truest form of, you know of that term yeah it is and the book is even more also about the detective you've read it yeah i read the book a couple of years ago um and i was surprised at how much it does actually leave chris and reagan alone for Mm -hmm. quite a while it keeps jumping around to karis and um i need to reread it it's been about 20 years since i've read it i i absolutely devoured it and i wasn't expecting to i found the writing so pervasive and so colorful and kind of horrific um and it's portrayals of kind of broken humans mm. is so compelling um and it it adds a depth it has a depth that the film isn't really able to really get into because by nature of being a film mm. um but yeah i really recommend the book i think the book's actually a masterpiece to be honest do you think the writer william peter blatty believes that the case that this is inspired from mm. was a real case of of possession and exorcism I don't know. I don't really... I read up a little bit about um, him and his inspirations because I know it was inspired by a young boy who apparently was possessed. In the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because originally he wanted to write a non-fiction book about that. Right. And he hunted down the priest who did the exorcism Mm. and said, I want to write about this. Can you put me in contact with the family? And he said, they will not talk. I've had to agree with them that we just won't... I won't talk to anyone. But if they're okay... I'll, if they're okay and give me permission, then we can talk about it. We can do a book. They said no. The priest said, I can't talk to you about anything, but I can tell you that the case I saw, I believe 100% to be true. Hmm. 
Well, that's the is that the priest who's thanked in the front of the book? Potentially. And, and his his diary, um, Peter Blatty, he read he read his diary afterwards. I think after he died. So he, I think William Peter Blatty had finished writing the book without using any of the actual official information. Mm. But then, when he'd finished the draft, he sent it to this priest who he'd had contact with, and the priest then sent him kind of photocopied pages from a diary that did detail what actually happened in that mm. real possession case. Um, I think you can't write something like this unless you believe 100%. Yeah, I think that he he's a, he was a he's a religious man, isn't he, William Peter Blatty? He's a Catholic. Yes, Catholic, yeah. So he and William believes... Friedkin, the director's a Jew. <laughs> so oh, wow. It's a okay. really bizarre like like balancing act there. Yeah. Do you think that the film is anti-Muslim? I don't think so. I mean it's 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 set it, the opening is in Iraq, but really, it could be set anywhere. It could have been anywhere in the Middle East. I, I think they just happened to choose Iraq because it's in the book. But, um, because obviously, if we trace back all civilizations, everything starts in the Middle East. Mm. You know, if, we, if, we, if we're talking on a religious um, scale here, the Bible and all that, all those stories originate from the Middle East, yeah. from Egypt and Israel. So, of course, if an ancient evil, if an ancient spirit, if an ancient entity is going to be discovered somewhere, it's going to be in the Middle East. Yeah. And it's telling about the, the nature of this good and evil aspect um, that while he's sort of digging out that little hole and he finds the statue of Pazuzu, he also finds a St. Christopher medal. Yeah. Why would they be buried together when they're from completely different ends of the world, completely different religions, completely different time frames? Mm. I don't yeah. think it's anti-Muslim. Why did you pick up something well, like just, that? It's just interesting that there's, you know, he starts off in Iraq and there's a suggestion that the the devil that, you know, Pazuzu, the statue of Pazuzu, mm. the devil that he encounters in Iraq in a Muslim country, then we are led to believe possesses this American girl and it takes a Christian priest to expel it from her. I never thought of that. So it it's not necessarily saying one way or the other, but there is, you can read into that subtext that there's an evil Muslim demon that's gone into this girl and it takes a Catholic to expel it. But is it a Muslim demon? How do, well, we, how do we know? It just happens to be from that area that is now highly populated and possibly controlled by you know, Muslim people and Muslim authorities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not It's not really clear. I can't remember if it's clearer in the book. Um, but yeah, what you've said about how it being this kind of ancient thing that is steeped in the roots of religion, that, mm. that makes sense too. So, The documentary camera, I think, is almost like another character. It's almost like outside of the actual human characters, it's the most important aspect in this film. Hmm. The fact that at times freaking just puts the camera in position and he just allows the scene to unfold. And it's almost improvised. There's a real realness in, in scenes of Chris and Regan sort of sat on the bed chatting hmm. um, and Karis leading the Holy Communion, the medical procedures... I think were done by real yeah, medical were. practitioners. Yeah, um, at the um, New York University Medical Center, I oh, think wow. you'll find. Yeah, Get medical you. staff for real. 
uh, a lot of the Iraq sequences are filmed in this way. Yeah. The mental ward, the way that we view the patients, it's not, you know, this is not a Blumhouse film. Mm. We're not suddenly seeing cackling mental people. We're just viewing someone with mental health having a very quiet personal moment. Yeah. And I think that gives it this entire realism, which is yeah. incredibly powerful. It's powerful because you, you have scenes of, you have like conversational scenes where, you know, Chris is maybe talking with one of the, the staff in the house or she's mm. talking with the detective who comes to investigate. And it's kind of all very quiet and, and dialogue led. And then suddenly out of that, there's like a screaming, intense, terrifying moment where something insane happens in Reagan's bedroom. And this kind of horror just erupts out of this tranquil landscape yeah and it, that's why it's so horrific because you're just like we were just having a chat and now she's and, flying around the room and did you did you pay attention whenever they whenever chris runs into that room into reagan's bedroom to see what's happening the camera always goes towards the door yeah then once we once the door is open and we are in the room the camera's always facing the door as it opens mm -hmm. and the first person's face even before we've seen the horror of what's going on in the room is chris yeah. It's Chris's face. Yeah, it's, you don't see it first. Well, it, it's talking about that this is her story as well. Mm. There's this the trauma that the mother is suffering. Yeah, that horror and, and her reaction to it's like... And she plays it. It's not a melodrama. Yeah. It's not a case of sitting there crying, why is my child like this? Why? Why, God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people have to die? Mm. It's a case of, I'm a mother... And the issue, the issue that the child is having could be anything. It could be, you know, seizures. It could be, you know, taking drugs or, or playing truant. She plays it very realistic. Yeah. The only moment, so you, you were talking about the documentary style, the kind of the documentary camera. The moment that changes is the moment the exorcist arrives. Mm. You know, it's all very kind of... Um, realistically shot and then the second someone's like you know the exorcist is coming that's when you get that fog outside the house you get this kind of blue light it takes it on a changes. surreal nature it becomes yeah. a mystical thing where it's like the exorcist is here you know he's finally arrived and but i think that's i think that's a case of all the the spirits and all the 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 mystical religious elements are now able to show themselves for real yeah because yeah. the fact that the church have sent their their you know their number one exorcist probably validates the demon or the devil mm. by saying fuck me i tricked them yeah they actually believe this i'm completely validated i'm going to show my immense power now yeah it's very clever though because you watch reagan's bedroom change over mm. the course of the film so gradually from the start of the film up until that 90 minute point when um maximum Siddow turns up you watch her bedroom the color bleeds slowly out of it until mm. when he goes into that room it looks like he's in hell hell is frozen over yeah and he's now in there it's so cleverly done it really is it's almost black and white yeah by the time he gets in there it's dead it's a dead room yeah nothing can live in there yeah and she has changed beyond recognition you forget when she's suddenly at the end, 
when she's kind of she's been the demon's been expelled and she comes out of the front of the house looking very fragile and exhausted you forget that's what she looked like at the beginning you know obviously yeah. not like that but the good version of that at the beginning of the film because you know gradually in that room she just she dries into a husk and her skin cracks the her eyes change her voice changes she looks like she's been combing eggs through her hair it's just <laughs> she looks horrific the lacerations on her face mm. they they decided that they would be self-inflicted so they would be cut lips from biting cut uh in in the faces from her hands mm. any any um, injury that she might have sustained from being restrained. That's why her hands are, are tied yeah. eventually. But the the realism, I think, is at odds, or rather it's the other way around. The spider walk, yes. which was put back in in 2000, it was taken out because it never worked. They couldn't get the wires erased. It looked goofy. Um, he also didn't... The, also, that scene had a double peak, had a double conclusion. It's the scene where um, Ellen comes home and then she's arguing or having a go at the assistant, the one of the housekeepers. Why did you leave her alone? I left Burke in charge. Oh, I should have known. Oh, yeah, I guess you should have known. Open the door. It's her friend saying Burke's dead. Ellen uh, brings that scene to a climax by by screaming, biting her hand and turning around and smacking the wall. Mm. Fade to black mm. or cut to black. That's when the spider walk happens. Oh. So there's a double... Yeah. There's a double climax and it just doesn't work. But they put it back in. It doesn't work. But it also is at odds with the realism because suddenly she's walking backwards down the stairs. She's vomiting up blood and then it's never mentioned again. Mm. But it also doesn't work. I have seen that, that scene. Um, and I always thought it was like a cool idea and it is quite scary in a very kind of cheesy, goofy kind of way. Mm. But it, thematically... It doesn't work either because she's meant to be confined to this room. She's yeah. become imprisoned and she loses her, you know, the, the character, the setup, the idea. It loses all power if she's mobile and able to leave that room. Yeah. It should be that she is stuck in this room in this kind of perpetual limbo. So if she's suddenly like crawling around the house. It, it weirdly depowers that, that horror, I think. Of all the things that were put back in, for the, the version you've never seen or the director's extended cut as it's now known, of all the things that put back in, that's the thing that I would take out first. Yeah. If I had to keep everything but remove only one thing, the spider walk would come out. Mm. I could live with everything else. Yeah. The stupid faces, the, the, the whimsical ending, the extra hospital scenes that slow it down ever so slightly and hammer it home, the conversation between Merrin and Karis about why this girl that mm. is a little bit obvious but kind of just about works. But the spider walk in any capacity just doesn't work. Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't need it either because she, Linda Blair, this film would be nothing without Linda Blair's performance. As, as amazing as the, I've forgotten the name of the woman, McCarmichael or somebody who dubbed the kind of the weird grown oh, up voice. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge. Yeah. yeah. Her. So as amazing as her voice work is, I think it's such a physical performance clearly for Linda Blair and she is terrifying and mm. you're horrified of her and for her yes. at what she's doing. Um, and it, it's, it's, oh, because it's just it, awful. It's because she's, she, it's the body of a child, mm. but the consciousness mm. is of a very 
manipulative, vindictive adult. Yeah. And it might be the voice of someone else, but you can't fake the eyes. No. You know, when an actor acts with just their eyes, that's where the authenticity comes from. And that child, mm. that Linda Blair as a 12-year-old is doing that and she is smashing it yeah and it's it's the scene where Karis first goes to talk to her and she 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 says kindly undo these straps and he says why can't you do that and she goes that would be far too vulgar a display of uh, power yeah and then she uh, <laughs> say that again latin la 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 but yeah. it's all that that playfulness and it's all in the eyes yeah if, it it, is. if the eyes were dead the role just wouldn't have worked yeah so that was genius casting and they must have looked at thousands i think it was close to five thousand six thousand yeah. girls over the course of a year and obviously she was one of the last ones they found yeah well and, they wanted jamie lee curtis and Janet, really? Janet Lee was like, my daughter is not doing that. I don't think so, it would work. Jamie Lee yeah. Curtis has never had that kind of cute face. Her features are far too sharp. They've always been. Janet Lee has very sharp features. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. But this, but Linda Blair, she'd been working since she was seven years old. She was doing commercials and she must have been that. And apparently, I think her mother, she, was, she wasn't even put in front of um, William Freakin. The, the casting agency sent like 30 girls. Yeah. And... Um, and Linda Blair's mother was like, I'm not having this shit. And she just like stormed in there with Linda Blair and said audition. And there you go. Love a pushy mum. I know. But I think her mother was very much like, um, you know, make enough money before you're 20 or whatever. Yeah. And you can live whatever life you want. She's done all right. So, I mean, she's carried on acting. Oh, I she love, did the sequel. But... I love her in Scream. Is she in Scream? Yeah. She's like, she's called like pushy reporter or obnoxious reporter. And she's in a really early scene when... Um, Sydney's just been attacked, I think, or... No, it's after Drew, Bar Drew Barrymore's died. Okay. Sydney turns up at the high school and then a reporter in a really gaudy... I think it's a red suit kind of comes running up to her with a mic and is like, how does it feel to be almost horrifically murdered or something like that? <laughs> and that's Linda Blair. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's a good coup. <laughs> yeah, getting, getting Linda Blair for that. Um, when do you think Chris realises that Regan has killed Burke Dennings. Oh, I think it's immediately, isn't it? You can tell that she knows. Because like, as soon as the detective starts, think, starts saying, I think there was a very big man in that room, and Chris mm. is like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> and she knows immediately that, Chris, uh, that her daughter has done it, and she kind but of... But that's not immediate, because that scene oh, comes yeah. a little after. She gets told that Burke is dead. Oh, Okay. So it's a, bit, a little bit later. I just think maybe in that moment... It's when she's forced to think about <clears throat> it. Well, I think maybe in that moment, she has a, a sneaking suspicion that Regan has done this. But she, she doesn't say anything. She better not tell but anyone. When she's speaking to the, to the detective, when Lee J. Cobb is speaking to her, I think the penny clicks, or the penny drops. And it's, mm. it's very subtle. It's not a... You know, it's not a smell the fart act here where yeah, she yeah. looks up with a, a quizzical eyebrow. It's a, oh, oh my God, this, this, this thing comes over her. Yeah. And it's, and she locks that knowledge down like crazy until it erupts out of her when she's talking to Karis. She's like, she, mm. she killed Bert. But that's the, the, the conversation with the policeman. Yeah. And the realisation that's, I think, the catalyst for her to go and find 
Yeah. The Exorcist. Because like, now hey, she's go find Karis. Now she knows that this is not getting better. Well, her innocent child yeah. has has crossed the line. Her innocent child has been dragged across this line and made to do this horrendous thing. It's re- it's such a clever bit of storytelling the way she gets home Reagan's like face down in bed with the, with the duvet off and yeah, the window's and the window wide open. open it's freezing cold and you're like what what a terrible mother how how was she left a child to be like this and then gradually you learn that she didn't leave her alone no she didn't and it, it yeah you don't see that you don't even know he was even in the house you don't see yeah. him in the house yeah. you only hear about what has potentially happened you don't but even that see leaves, his body that leaves it that leaves it ambiguous for yeah, us as it does, well as an audience. It's so well played. Because it would be clever. so obvious to have that scene where she snaps his neck and throws him out the, through, you know, out the window, not through the window. Yeah. You don't see him. You don't see even the body. You see nothing. No. Well, we see some the kerfuffle. Blood. We see the blood. We see some kerfuffle, don't we? Really? Because she's driving home and there's a police car and there's some people around. Oh, right. Yeah. But uh, we don't see where it is and what's going no. on. It's just that's happening to those people over there. That's not connected to us. Yeah. That's happening to people over there. I love that flight of stairs. Yeah. Which is like right... It's still there. Yeah. Right after that Iraq scene, you immediately go into that stairs. Or you zoom into the tower. Zoom into the house. And you yeah. see the stairs with those the I love those 70s long lens zooms. Yeah. Munich used that. Yeah. That was 2005. Yeah, yeah. But Munich used that to make it look like a 70s film. Can the demon predict the future? Oh. Um, I'm trying to think of any examples where it does. Doesn't the backwards talking, doesn't she predict something when she's doing, when they play it backwards? It says Merrin. Yeah. He's he's listened to the multitude of voices coming out of Regan's mouth. And when he's playing it, you hear Merrin. And you also hear Dimmy, Dimmy of the mother. Uh, But you also hear Merrin. Yeah. Merrin. So it's almost like this... um, fated thing that they're going to confront each other yeah or maybe that demon maybe it is the devil and the devil has dealt with merin before mm. yeah 10 or 12 is years ago one? that that same exorcism that nearly killed him damn near killed him yeah nearly damn near killed him maybe it was the same the same one and when when he turns up at the house she screams merin mm. So she knows. I shout that at my boyfriends all the time. <laughs> He's like, stop doing that. <laughs> Do you think that she does... Um, does Reagan, does she bring it on herself? Bring what on? Does she open something up by using the Ouija board? Because she mm, starts talking about Captain Well, that's Howdy. the ambiguous question, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, that's tied into why this girl... Yeah. And it's never answered. No, it's never answered. It's never answered. Do you feel unsatisfied that it's not answered? Um, I, don't, I don't think so, because you can believe it was her fault. She went down a dark path using the Ouija board. But you can also believe that, that it just happened, you know, or you, don't, you also don't have to take the, the film literally. You know, mm. it, it's also, it is about, a, it's, my friend said this the other day, uh, how it's kind of also about the fear of teenage girls you know, changing bodies. Yeah. She's on the cusp of puberty and her body has just gone absolutely mental. And the mother um, is, you know, the mother thinks, she doesn't swear. Like right. in the, that's actually, that's, that's another thing. That's, there's a conversation between um, a doctor and, and Chris. Yeah. And the 
doctor says, and this is in the director's cut, this is not in the version you watched. Um, the doctor says, does your daughter swear? And Chris says, no, of course not. She doesn't swear at all. I don't even think she knows the words. And the hmm. doctor said, she kind of unleashed a bit in the room. <laughs> and Chris said, well, what does, she, what does she say? Be specific. And the doctor said, well, she said to me, and it's along the lines of like, um, you, better not, you better keep your fingers away from my cunt. Yeah. And Chris is just like, that's not my daughter. That's from the book. Is that from the book? Yeah. But there is a there is the idea that the child is beginning to see the adult world. Yeah. And in both versions of the film, Chris and Regan have a conversation where Regan's like, well, you can bring Burke to my birthday. You do like Burke, don't you? Oh, and yeah. Chris is like, yeah, as a friend. And Regan's like, you're going to marry Burke. So she's beginning to understand these things. And even when the devil has her masturbating with mm. the cross and there's blood in her crotch yeah it's you know it's clearly symbolizing oh, gotcha. menstrual blood yeah this child will soon begin to have her period she is on the cusp of becoming a woman she's not a child yeah she's she's no longer a child not yet a woman yeah she's in that weird horrible in-between phase yes and but where the they ho- become possessed <laughs> well yeah <laughs> well that's what it seems like a lot of the time um but yeah, the horror is all, it's literally written on her body. Like they lift up her, her pajamas and it says, help me. Like, yes. it, you can't read that any other way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I always had stuff written on my belly. <laughs> Does Meryn wholeheartedly believe that Regan is possessed? Um, Meryn or Karis? Meryn. Uh, I don't, I think he does, doesn't he? I reckon so. Yeah, because he doesn't he lit doesn't know her in any other way than when he meets her in the house and she's looks like, you know, that wo- woman from Iraq. Yeah. Um yeah, he believes he like he completely goes in there guns fighting, doesn't he? Guns blazing. Yeah. Cuz Karis tries to explain to him. He goes, "I've identified three personality traits in Regan." And he's about to go into the three and Karis just goes, "There's only one." Yeah. There's only one. Uh, yeah, I love that he comes in with that authority and you completely believe him and then suddenly he's dead off screen. Yeah. I love that really quiet, that quiet, hot, that quality that the film has where, he, you know, Karis goes back into the bedroom and um, Meryn is dead and then, uh, what's her name? Reagan is kind of like laughing. Yeah. It's so creepy. She's like, she almost can't believe she's done it. She's mm. like, oh, fuck. Or the devil can't believe. Right, yeah, it's not Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, it's really... It's really spooky and unsettling. Does the devil play on our personal fears? What, in the film? In this film. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, hugely. Yeah. It does, because it's it's targeted, the, you know, the most innocent person you could, really. Mm-hmm. The most innocent person in this story is this young girl. And it, it corrupts her absolutely. But that um, would be a fear for... The mother, yeah. but it wouldn't necessarily be a fear for Jason Miller's character, Father Karras. No, but then the the devil does say your mother sucks cocks in hell. Yeah, so your he, mother's in here with us. Yeah, Would you yeah. care to leave a message? Although, yeah, that when they um, the TV version of America, <laughs> that was terrifying. The TV version of America dubs that line. Oh yeah, to your mother knit socks. In no. Hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's- 
<laughs> that's scary movie three no uh freaking when they did the the extra voices for the tv and, and the, the movie oh, the, really? the, the plane you know when they show films on planes and he said your mother still rots in hell uh, yeah but you know he, he taunts karis with the the guilt that karis feels over leaving his mother alone and the fact that he couldn't provide a safe haven for his mother yeah um by replicating her voice by get by creating a vision for for damien damien to see the mother on the bed during the exorcism and then obviously chris her personal fear is the the uh the fear that her daughter is now advancing to womanhood but also merin has a has a vision of pazuzu Mm. so there's clearly some sort of fear Mm. in merin maybe about the fact that you know, he's an old man and he's been doing these exorcisms for years and yet he is still doing these exorcisms. Yeah. They're not working. There's no end. The the evil spirits are maybe timeless and that's maybe why the clock stops Yeah, at the in the opening scene. That's creepy. Yeah. So no matter There's... how many times he does these exorcisms, it's just not going to fucking work. Yeah. Is it our fault? Are we not religious enough? Do we not have faith in the goodness of humanity enough? Well, I'm at two minds about that. Because surely if you, like I said, if, uh, like I said about the, you know, the devil feeling validated, the fact that they've sent Merrin. If you give these mystical things attention and believe in them, are you not empowering them? There's that... um, Years ago, I watched like a, t- a TV version of uh, the Merlin story, mm. uh, the one with Sam Neill from about 20 years ago. And the way they killed the big baddie witch played by Miranda Richardson was just turn your back and ignore her. Mm. It takes her power away and she disappears. And she did. Yeah. So if we turn our back on the devil, do we take away the devil's power and will the devil be rendered uh, powerless? Yeah. Or... And it's, I've it's spoken that idea about, of putting energy into something, you give it power, absolutely. But also, I've spoken about this before. If we turn our back on the devil and um, take away the power by denying the devil's existence, are we luring ourselves into a false sense of security, which gives the devil the opportunity to infiltrate? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I suppose it depends on how you define the devil. Like, is the devil a, a thing that, that affects you or does everyone have a bit of the devil in them anyway that they if they don't pay attention to it it's going to get them like alcoholism or drug addicts you know is is that the devil it's kind of behavioral stuff that so we all have the potential to become possessed and yeah it's just about whether we take our well do you do you not think when you see someone who's like but drunk beyond belief they look possessed they are like they're hanging down, they they can't hold their head up. They're drooling. You know, it looks like a possession. You usually go quite red when you drink. That's why I shouldn't <laughs> drink. Like a tomato. Exactly. Um, why does Father Dyer give Chris back the Saint Christopher necklace at the end? I didn't understand any of the necklace stuff. I just didn't keep up with that at all. I was too busy trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. No, I I don't know. Well, I know that to protect. Know well, that, they're going on another journey, to, well, so it's to protect them on the next leg yeah, of their so journey. Yeah, so I think Christians wear them because it's it's a protection. You have yeah. the spirit of the saint around you. Yeah, but actually, I can't remember. 
Chris did at the end of the film you the version you watched did Chris give it back to the father he gave it to her and she drove off with it yeah okay yeah. right oh wait no sorry I can't remember now because at the end of the no, version she stops the car doesn't she and she gives it to him gives it to him yeah okay because at the end of the version I watched he gives it back to her and they drive off oh I can't remember and I think that because he's a priest he possibly knows that the, the spirits and the devil will never give up and the child is the one that's going to need the protection mm. he's already protected because he's a holy man yeah she needs that protection mm. why why do you think uh, William Peter Blatty made her an actress what's the relevance of that I think it's to draw parallels between pretending so mm. you know at one point they didn't know what was wrong with Regan? They didn't know that she was possessed. They were trying all these different medical things, all these uh, psychological explanations. And yet, potentially, it could just be in her head. Hmm. It could just be uh, a disorder of uh, nerves or something. Is, is, yeah, nerves, they is, say. Yeah. Um, but also the devil plays tricks. The devil is playing a role. The devil is saying non-truths, which is what acting is. Hmm. Acting is taking on a role and making it truth. The devil is taking on this child and making it true that Regan killed Burke. Regan didn't kill Burke. The devil forced her hand. Mm. So there's, there's, I mean, I see it as that, drawing parallels between tricks and trickery and playfulness. Mm. And there's a parallel between Chris and Karis as well, in that they both, are failing to look after someone who's extremely um, vulnerable. So he's got an elderly woman, his mother. She has a young girl, her daughter. Timmy. Timmy. Timmy, why you do this to me, Timmy? (laughs) I ain't going no place. (laughs) Did you not also get a huge Rocky vibe whenever you saw Karras in his, like, sweatpants? Oh, 100%. He's like, he is a boxer, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Jason Miller was a boxer. Yeah, it's just... Hilarious. Have you seen the sequels? I think I, I started watching The Exorcist 2. The Heretic. A couple of years ago, yeah. And it is horrific. I've just, I've always, it's John Borman, right? I've always mm. avoided it. But the third one. Which is William Peter Blatty. Which he directed it. He wrote it. Based on his book Legion, I think. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's, it's not as good as this one. Nothing, I mean, I don't think anything could be as good as, as no. this. None of the sequels, none Nobody of the prequels. Um, I made a list. There was the there was the exorcism of Emily Rose in two thousand and five. Yeah. There was the last exorcism in twenty ten. There was the right in twenty eleven with Anthony Hopkins. The devil inside in twenty twelve. And nobody can do the exorcist thing as well as this film does because they all play into the the idea of what it should be. You know, it's become like a um, like a branding. It needs to be graded this way. We need lighting this way. This ex the things that need to happen are one, two, three, X, Y, and Z. The only film that did a good possession, yeah, the witch, mm. the boy, yes, when he's writhing around in the attic, that was really scary. And sicks up the apple, yeah, and then has his temple split open to uh, uh, bleed out the spirit. Mm. But then that's very Shakespearean, yeah. But in terms of all those other films, they they clearly want to be. Like the Exorcist, yeah. They want to be the. They want to ad- adhere to the the William Freakin vision, 
but kind of do it in the same way that the, these new Star Wars films. There's X, Y, and Z. We have to have these things. It has to look a particular way. It has to feel a particular way. And then we go and add our own flourishes. Mm. But the fact is, if you're, if you're making the film kind of in that way, it's not always authentic. And unfortunately, for them, they don't have the element of surprise. No. This film doesn't play out like a horror. It plays out like a family drama. Yeah, and it's not really about an exorcism. No, it's not. That's 20 you minutes know, of the film. Yeah, it's, it's more about like horror happening to families, you mm. know. And Although the, the Exorcist of Emily Rose is interesting because it's not an exorcist film. It's a courtroom drama oh, yeah. about a the, failed the validity of yeah. exorcisms. Yeah. So of the list that you've just read out, that's probably... The, I mean, I have seen that and I really enjoyed it. That's probably the one that's the most... That's the one that I would... If we had to do further watching, I would say go and watch that one. Mm. And go and watch Exorcist 3 because it is a genuinely good movie. Okay. And it, it's... I haven't seen it in a while, but it does. It doesn't tie things up, but there's a nice little cameo. Yeah. I, and this is... The Exorcist was also a big part of the marketing campaign for Hereditary this year. Where there was yeah. that quote that was like, that this is the next gen, next gen Exorcist. Or yeah. The, the scariest film since The Exorcist. The or, New Shining or the yeah, New This yeah. and the Other. In fact, on the DVD box and on the Blu-ray box of The Exorcist, it says the scariest movie of all time. And I don't think that should be on there because that mm. is a hype that you're never going to be able no. to, to reach. Because yeah. people expect jump scares. People expect to be scared in the moment. And whilst The Exorcist can do that, the real fear comes from allowing it to mind worm you, stay in your brain, and then the fear creeps in later when you realise all these different themes and the, the more you watch it, the more it infiltrates you. Mm. I think I've, it's a film I could definitely watch year, uh, yeah, what, at least once. I've watched it twice in the past month. Oh my God. What's Michael 2001 going to do? I've got plenty of space and time. All right. Okay. Plenty of space and time to watch all my favorite films. But The Exorcist, I never get bored of it. You know that Stanley Kubrick was turned down The Exorcist. He did turn it down. Yeah. 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 yeah he went and did Barry Lyndon. Oh wow, that's a very different type of film. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it needed a documentary maker. Yeah. To to make this film, and Freakin had cut his teeth on documentaries, mm. which is similar. Actually, I feel like there's a lot, a lot of parallels between The Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs because Silence of the Lambs does a very similar thing where it's kind of, it's not showy. It's very much kind of a camera in front. And like, often the actors talked at the camera. At, at the camera, yeah. yeah. But it, that's more of a, a police procedure that just happens to have yeah. these, these horrific horror elements. Do you think, did you hear about the whole elevated horror thing? Elevated horror, yeah. what's that? It was this thing that, that happened earlier this year when Hereditary came out where kind of snooty tabloid critics who kind of, in inverted commas, aren't supposed to like horror films, they used um, the term elevated horror to describe hereditary. Oh, vaguely. I think yeah. they spoke about... Oh, I think Brace Nellis spoke about this. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. like things like Get Out are A Quiet Place. Loved by the critics, A Quiet yeah. Place. But things this. like Insidious yeah. can't be. But whereas Insidious is wearing its horror elements on its sleeve, yeah. things like Hereditary and Get Out are not. Mm. Hereditary, again, is just a film that says it's a family. It's about madness. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and Get Out is a social commentary film. Yeah. Well, how, how was A Quiet Place? It was kind of future... Well, it's kind of a monster yeah. movie, but again, it, yeah. about the panic of, of protecting your family. Yeah. Have you not seen it? No, I really want to see it. Okay. But I haven't yet. So it's very know. good. Yeah. It's very, very good. Um, do you think you could watch this again quite soon, The Exorcist? Uh, maybe you should watch the, the, other the extended version. just to see how it compares. Yeah, maybe. I have seen that version at some point, but... Um, I do, I, it's, it's, uh, no, I'm not going to watch it again for a while, I don't think, because <laughs> it is just, it is unsettling. Um, it's not the, you know, I don't think it is like the scariest film ever made or anything, but it is intense. So that was The Exorcist directed by William Friedkin. How many times do you think The Exorcist theme tune is actually played? Well, it's not called The Exorcist Theme Chain. No, I know. It's called Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. Tubular Bells? Um, it is only twice. Yeah, it's... When she's walking, she first sees Karis. She goes for a lovely walk. She goes for a walk. I think I'll walk home today. Yeah. And then it's played... Very briefly. When he arrives? No, no it's No, it's not. just right at the end, it's isn't right it? At right the at the end. end, before it goes... Yeah. Like very old school Herman... Herman Berman? No, Herman Berman. <laughs> Herman Bernard. It's, 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 Bernard Herman. Bernard Herman strings. <laughs> it's um, just weird that it's become this huge thing. Yeah, and, and if you actually listen to the whole thing, and we've got it playing over this, this, this outro, um, it starts off quite scary yeah. and quite unsettling, but it actually becomes a very positive, happy... It's, it gets that guitar blom, 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 yeah. blom, blom. It becomes like, I don't know, something Rod Jane and Freddie might have composed. <laughs> it's like Mama Cass has just jumped on the guitar. Yeah. yeah. Um, let us know what you think of The Exorcist. Are you a fan of the 1973 original or do you prefer the 2000 cut? Let us know on Twitter at TornStubsPod. And hop onto the podcast app. And it'd be great if you gave us a rating, give us a review, let us know what you think about the podcast. And we're back on New Year's Eve running down our top five and our bottom five films of 2018. In fact, it's five each. We've each chosen our own five. And we're going to see how they compare. And we're going to flip-flop. We're going to flip-flop. We're going to do that on New Year's Eve. So hit subscribe and you won't miss that episode. We're off to suck cocks in hell. Until next time... I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Marin!